Hi, this is Pep Rosenfeld from Boom Chicago, and I am broadcasting live. And by live, I mean it's not live. We are recording it at the TQ building in Amsterdam. And uh, today, I'm going to be talking to Zahar Hashimi, uh, who's a former solicitor, which is British for lawyer, uh, who co-founded Coffee Republic, which was the UK's first US-style coffee bar chain, which she then built with her brother into one of the UK's most recognized high street brands with 110 bars and a turnover of 30 million pounds, which is a lot now. Now, after Brexit is a thing, then it's like eight euro, but for now it's a ton. She's the author of two books, the best-selling Anyone Can Do It, Building Coffee Republic from Our Kitchen Table, and Switched On. She's currently finishing up her third book, Startup Forever, 10 Ways to Behave Like a Startup When You're Not a Startup, based on her experiences working with large organization. That is what is coming up on... Business as Unusual, the podcast in the serious business of not taking business too seriously. Sahar, thank you for joining us this afternoon. Um, nice, nice. Thank you, Pat. Pleasure. And uh, now we, we met, you and I, but briefly, it was sort of a backstage meeting at the, uh, at the Nordic Business Forum Stockholm. And uh, how was that experience for you? Um, it was wonderful. I always love uh, speaking to Scandinavian audiences. I have to say, um, the kind of energy and the kind of openness to hearing new ideas is wonderful there. So, yeah, it was a big event. The other speakers were great. It's you know great to go to these events and you can hear the other speakers and learn a bit. And um, yeah, it's a great opportunity. That's actually quite nice to hear because as as someone who's backstage, I see some speakers stick around and and watch the other ones excitedly, and some just you know get out of there. I did my thing. I got to go do a book signing and fly to the next event. Yeah, no, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. I mean, when do you ever get to sort of be in the audience? And I think, you know, the opportunity to hear these other speakers, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, that, that, that's half the joy of all this. It's like the rock bands at, you know, Live Aid. Are you there to just for yourself? Are you there? Because, you know, hey, I also want to watch Queen. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Someone just saw Bohemian Rhapsody. Okay. Um, well, let me let me dive right in and uh, and talk about uh, sort of the, the the themes behind the your your third book, uh, Startup Forever. Um, you know, I think we hear more and more uh, we being you know me and my crew, we hear more and more about you know big organizations trying to carve out startup like culture within their organizations, and I've heard a lot of different theories about it. What's your take, which I guess is me asking you to summarize the book you're about to publish in a minute, but what 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 is your take? How should they do it? Uh, well, I mean, it, you know, the, the angle I come from is, um, you know, in the 70s, you used to have this word entrepreneurship, and entrepreneurship is actually a word that I quite dislike entrepreneurship because it almost... Um, it means, I think it was a book by someone written by Guilford Pinchot in the 70s, and the idea of that is that entrepreneurship is something separate that organizations do. It's sort of like, you know, you know, dedicating resources to a separate unit that's going to innovate. Um, for me, um, it's actually not that. This whole idea of being entrepreneurial is something that's going to be done all across the organization at absolutely every level. It's not just something that it does separately, like a separate unit, like what we used to have, Skunk Works or anything like that. It's more something that's got to be embedded into, you know, every day every minute of the life of an organization so then what is the definition of entrepreneurship how you know, yeah yeah full stop 
Yeah, I mean, for me, entrepreneurship is, um, you know, I used to think entrepreneurship was a sort of special chromosome some people had that some people didn't. I used to think it was almost like a personality trait that you happen to be the creative one, the one that, you know, solved problems or found new ideas. But I think entrepreneurship is just, in a way, a sort of methodology. It's it's a way of turning ideas into your head into reality. It's a different approach to looking at life entrepreneurship and you know the essence of it I suppose is it comes from you know rather than just you know going in for just for the sake of it you know you see the end result of what you're doing um so you know as an entrepreneur you're always trying to kind of I suppose meet a customer need that's how an idea comes up in a for a business and this you know in large companies a translation of this is find you know the end recipient of your product and you know how you can make it happen for them i think that's what entrepreneurship is and the steps you take to make their life better and and try towards making their life better well now this this because i have uh, i certainly heard a lot of people say that uh you know entrepreneurship either born with it or you're not and you saying the opposite you know sounds like the talk of someone who stumbled into entrepreneurship uh, unexpectedly how uh, how did coffee republic come about um well yes i mean I, I kind of call myself the accidental entrepreneur because i never thought i was the entrepreneurial type i thought you know i was brought up against the idea of richard branson that you know kind of you had to be like richard branson to be an entrepreneur you had to have you know dropped out of school and somehow you know made your mark you know in kindergarten and so i didn't think i was an entrepreneur and all that happened was basically i went to america and i i had a skinny latte at this company called new world coffee which is a predecessor to starbucks and i kind of loved the idea of having a skinny latte every morning um i came back to london and i realized i couldn't have a skinny latte because there were no coffee bars around um so I basically looked around and didn't, you know, I, I'd sort of seen something in America and we didn't have it in the UK. And as a customer, I wanted it myself. So um, I remember telling my brother, I can't believe we haven't got these new style coffee bars. And he was like, well, this is a brilliant business idea. And my reaction was actually great. You know, I know it's a business idea, but great. Why doesn't someone else go and do it and for me to go to it as a customer? And so I didn't realize that actually starting something that I needed as a customer myself was you're the best place to start a business and that's how most businesses start or most good businesses start when you're fulfilling an unmet need when you're scratching your own itch in a way of course i think there's a lot of companies that probably start up you know it's sort of that you know was jobs combo where you, you know you're a bit of the was who had the creative idea but never thought of selling it and your brother you know sounds like he immediately realized hey that's a great business idea in a way that's that, right. Know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think I kind of turned the, you know, I was the customer. I was the sort of first customer in chief in a way, the chief customer, you know, I wanted the product for myself and my brother turned that because he knew how to start a business. I didn't really know the steps, which is why, but that's why I wrote my first any book, Anyone Can Do It, because, you know, I then realized actually um, there's no magic to this. It's just a series of steps you follow to turn an idea into your head, into reality. Did you did you say to your brother, you know, this was so good the way we started this 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 company, someone should write a book about it? And then he was like, no, no, you have to write the book about it. Like, or did you or did you by that time you were like, actually, I'm going to write the book about it. Um, yes. Well, um, yeah, I kind of yeah by that say. I mean, you know, that initial thing was, you know, he knew exactly how to do it. Um, yeah. No, hopefully, I'd had enough confidence about that. Yeah. <laughs> And so, so what, you know, what about in organizations? How, 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 how do you do, how, you know, what, how do you, gosh, can anyone be an entrepreneur within the organization or, or 
does it does do you have to be someone in management do you have to be someone at the top can anyone do it um, yeah, I think, you know, it, it, for me, entrepreneurship and organization is something whereby, you know, every single person has <coughs> got to connect. I'll start again. Every single person needs to connect with the fruits of what they do, the fruits of their labor. You know, they're the end recipient of what they do. So, you know, as soon as you realize why you're going to work every day and who you're doing it for and realizing you're part of the bigger picture and realizing you're making a difference to the end recipient, um, you kind of almost ignite the entrepreneur within people. The problem we have in large organizations is, in a way, bureaucracy takes over. You know, there's so much bureaucracy, people don't know who they're working for. They end up kind of almost working for the bureaucracy of every day, just following the systems, you know, reporting into their boss. So you lose that purpose. You know, people talk about purpose and um, people have, you know, grand yeah. ideas of what purpose is. It's not just saving the world. Purpose is just mm-hmm. knowing that what you do every day actually makes a difference to the end customer, that you're part of this bigger picture. You're not just a cog in the wheel. You're, you're making this happen. So it sounds like it's not just that the work you're doing has uh, it, it has an outcome, but that you that you really have some uh, you can see see the fruits of your labor. You can really see that 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 what you do is has an effect. That's what that's what tends to spur this this, this entrepreneurial feeling. Yeah, because it sort of has meaning, doesn't it? It's just you know, for example, you know, the kind of the idea, you know, if, if you work in a pharmaceutical company. And you know, I come across this often, you know, many, many people feel because of obviously the regulations, you can never meet the patients who are benefiting from your drugs. You might hear about it, you might get reports on it, but you know what a difference it makes when you meet someone who's you know how is taking the medication that 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 you hmm. are producing, you're selling. And and seeing the difference that, that makes, that you know, that gives you so much more incentive. Um, I'm sure um, you've seen Adam Grant did a, did a research in that um, of, of the kids at college in his book, Give or Take, um, the kids at the call center um, that were raising money from the alumni for a college. Um, they found that actually once the kids who were in the call center, um, you know, trying to kind of fundraise, once they actually met the recipients of the grants, and what they, once they actually saw what a difference the grants made to the recipients, their performance, you know how it was in fundraising, just hmm. went up miles because they could see that they were changing something. It just gives more meaning. You know, we're humans. You know, we're not machines at the end of the day. And we feel we have to make a difference. And that ignites that sort of part of us that, that we need to kind of give us that dynamism and that perseverance and that drive. So, you know, you're talking about working to just feed the bureaucracy and uh, or, or how some people feel like they're working to feed the bureaucracy. That makes me wonder, do you feel like as organizations grow and things get more complex, there's just like there's no way to avoid maintaining high levels of, of, of creativity, of, of innovation, of all the stuff that we associate with entrepreneurship? Or can organizations, you know, do that, keep, keep that stuff happening while they're getting big and complex and bureaucratic? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it, it, it's a great question, actually, because, you know, in, in a way, you're not a startup. You know, I, I speak about, you know, we were a startup. A lot of my story is around when we first started. And, you know, there's two people around a kitchen table. You get a bit bigger. It's 10 people around a kitchen table. Then you go to a small office. Of course, in organizations, you know, you've got thousands of people. So, you know, you have to have some sort of a systems and some sort of a, a disciplines to keep everyone under control to make sure, you know, how it is you, you've got some sort of a, um, a, a, a accounting for, for what everyone's doing. But, you know, the question is, to what extent that's taken over, to what extent that has 
you know, makes people too busy. You know, I talk a lot about people being so busy in the bureaucracy and the meetings and reporting to each other that they forget about the most important person in their job, which is the customer, which who often resides outside the head office where supposedly it's all sort of meant to be going on in the head office and the customers, you know, on the outside, you know, completely um, forgotten in, in this world of bureaucracy. So, you know, a lot of the companies I've spoken to who really value, a, you know, a culture of innovation, um, they say it's about attacking the bureaucracy every day. Because you, if you don't attack bureaucracy, people become very internally focused. So you've got to get rid of the bureaucracy. You've got to free people up, free their time. So they've got time to look outwards where the world of the customer is. And how do you do that in real life? Because I feel like the bureaucracy wants to protect itself. You know, how, how, do, how do you... Yeah, I mean, you know, what's, what's interesting with bureaucracy is I've often my experience with big companies is you sort of say you can't do the bureaucracy and they sort of refer to a they. Oh, they do that. And you're like, who is they? Like, <laughs> you know, as if companies have a sort of Magna Carta or a constitution in a way that it's written somewhere. Whereas you often find, you know, bureaucracy is not written in stone anywhere. It's not a constitution of a, of, of, of a, country, of a company. It's just... It's just grown like that and people, you know, it's mm. almost imaginary in a way, the bureaucracy. And, you know, it's so easy to get rid of it. The power is in people's hands. You know, a company like Google, many companies have bureaucracy busters whereby people write in and say, listen, we don't need to have that rule. That rule does not serve a purpose. It just slows things down. Let's get rid of it. As simple as that. You know, now you can do that within small teams because if small teams look to see, OK, what's stopping us getting out there and realize do they really need to have 70 people or 40 people on the conference call every Monday morning? You know, getting rid of that, it frees people up. So it's just a question of looking at every day, looking at their diary to seeing how much of what's in their diary has to do with customers and take, you know, and, and take stuff out that's not got to do with customers to free time. And if you look at the average, like, you know, how busy an average calendar is, there are many, many things that you can cross out. There are many things you can get rid of. I feel like there's many things in most people's calendars that they that they that deep down they know they can get rid of, and the, and the trick is convincing the person that told them to put it in that calendar in the first place that it's a good thing to cross out. That's right. Like yeah, it, actually, very. I mean, I call it actually slightly comfort admin. You know, we're like, you know, there, there's a sort of thing about the comfort zone, isn't it? We're comfortable in that admin. It's just we know what it is. It sort of fills up the time when yeah. our time is full. We full. We feel we're needed. You know what I mean? Free time. People get very nervous with free time in organizations because it means, you know, you're not needed or, you know what I mean? But it might be for one minute, you're sort of, your work is redundant because you actually haven't got anything. And there, there we just, we, there's a lot of cachet to go with busyness. And I think it's just um, that will come from the top is, um, you know, when you kind of, for example, see Jeff Weiner of, of um, LinkedIn, you know, he says he schedules actively 90 minutes of free time in his diary. And how critical those 90 minutes are. So I think, you know, that that sort of culture that is going to be set from the top in a way to tell people it's okay to have the free time and how important that is to constantly attack your own bureaucracy to get out there with customers. Right. Nobody nobody thinks they're, they're, they're the CBO. Nobody's like, I'm the chief bureaucracy officer. And yet, yeah, no, there's a lot of people yet, you could. Yeah. Yeah. And yet people defend bureaucracy with their life because it, there's a sort of, you know, it's a bit like a comfort zone. We're, we're full comfortable with bureaucracy. It's something, it's something we know. It's something we just kind of fall back on. It feels safe in a way. I just feel like it's that, you know, the old like, oh, we have to get rid of our budget by the end of the year. Or we get a smaller budget like that to me is 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 exemplifies the whole problem. You know, like wrong metrics for for 
for did we have a successful year, you know, confusing, busy with productive, all the, all those things. That's right. Absolutely. And I mean, that's another kind of thing I've got, which is resourcefulness, which is, you know, we kind of we don't use any of our resourcefulness muscles at all, because exactly. It just, you know, if the budget's small, then we can do much less. If the budget's big, we feel we could do more. It's just, yeah, that that's another misnomer in big companies. Yeah, this was a, the classic, uh, you know, the, the, the time it takes to do a job will always expand to the amount of time allotted to do the job. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, there's kind of evidence that if you give people more more restricted time, restricted budget, um, the better they perform. You know, that's that old saying of, you know, scarcity breeds clarity. The more money, the more time you have, the more you sort of waste it and don't really get the job done, which is why um, that, you know, um, interesting contradiction that, Innovation happens in a startup that is cash-strapped with poor resources, um, you know, no time. And yet a big company that has got huge amount of resources, you know, huge amount of cash, um, has got a lot of time, doesn't innovate, which is exactly why. It's actually the lack of um, resources gives the startup that, that push, that need to be resourceful. So they sort of have to sort of suck every bit of juice out of the lemon, so to speak. Um, I don't know if suck the juice out of the lemon is really. <laughs> okay, let's not put that in. Let's not put that in then. We'll we'll totally cut that. Yeah, uh, exactly. Don't cut it. Um, <laughs> so so let me let me go back to, to Coffee Republic uh, f- for a sec. What, what do you think made it succeed so well? Like I see why you you and your brother wanted to start it, but what, why do you think it worked? Um, but, well, you know, we, we were obviously the first coffee bar of its kind to open in the UK. So, um, you know, there was there was a need for people wanted this new mm. style of coffee bars, and we brought a whole new way of drinking coffee. And um, you know, it was a time where people wanted a higher quality coffee experience, and we came with a brand. Yeah. Was the because uh, you, you know you said in 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 the origin story uh, that uh, you wanted a skinny latte, and there was nowhere to get a skinny latte. In my mind, part of the Starbucks story is always that there's comfortable chairs in there and there's nice but non-threatening music and that the the experience is also part of the the deal. Mm. Did was that was that that what 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 you you two did as well or, or was it Yes, was, yeah. There was, I mean the whole thing was, you know, on your way to work before, I suppose you, yeah, I mean definitely in the UK you'd either go to sandwich bars, so the coffee was very much sort of something on the side, or you'd go to the office coffee machine. So this idea was that you'd go in, you know, every day and then <clears> this would be that sort of ten minute respite from the office on your way in where you'd have the wonderful aroma of coffee going around, you'd hear the hiss of the coffee machine, you'd often find and see people who work locally, you know what I mean, you're getting all these delicious, like, it was just part of this kind of almost, there were sort of, you know, our saying used to be, you know, not everyone can afford the luxury holiday, luxury car, but you could afford that sort of luxury moment of coffee as opposed to going to the kind of office coffee machine and getting, you know, how there's a sort of a plastic cup coming out and, you know, there's your caffeine fix. Yeah, that then then it really is a caffeine fix. Then you might as well be dealing with that person from the pharmaceutical company who's selling drugs on the street. Well, I, I'm not sure actually about that, if there's anyone from pharmaceutical company selling drugs on the street. I might have to say, <laughs> can you take that? I don't want to be associated. I work a lot with pharmaceutical companies. I've never seen anyone selling drugs on the street. I have let to me say. just let me just quickly say I've never heard of that either. I just thought it would be an amusing way to to uh, heighten comedically 
the concept of these people in the pharmaceutical industries getting face-to-face contact. Yeah, with but then, but, not, but the only thing I would just say it actually denotes a certain dishonesty on that, which which is not true at all. I think it's just that they don't connect. I don't think any of them are you know are taking no, the drugs no, and sending no, on no, the street. Nobody is more benevolent or not in it for the money than big pharma. Nobody would ever say. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. Um, what 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 made you think that it was time to uh, time time to to sell the company? Um, well, you know, there, there was a sort of, um, at that time, there was very much the thinking that um, a big company, you know, that sort of once a company got big, entrepreneurs had a sell-by date and that, you know, what the value that an entrepreneur brought to a company was great just for the formation of it and the kind of creation of the company. But once a company is big, you don't need that value of the entrepreneur. You don't need the entrepreneurial spirit. You don't need the passion. You know, you've got to give it to management. You've got to give it to professionals because, you know, that bit's over. You've got the concept up and running. And now it's a question of just execution, just kind of almost like photocopying from an original. You're just photocopying, photocopying. You don't need any bit of creativity. Um, and so that's why, you know, we, that was very much the thinking, which is why we left. But, but, that, but, but, but you don't think that's true, do you? Um, no, which is obviously why I've written Startup Forever, my last book, which is, right. um, you know, we thought startup was a phase you grow out of um, rather than a phase you try hard to maintain. So I've called it Startup Forever because you actually have to be a startup forever. And this idea that entrepreneurs have a sell-by date and they're not needed in the company anymore is it, it, completely false because, um, you know, maybe the world used to be a tiny bit kind of slower and you didn't need that rate of innovation maybe 20 years ago, but now the sort of pace of change is such that you always have to reinvent your business constantly. And you know, um, who better to reinvent it and help you at least reinvent it than the person that you know started that spirit at the beginning to at least keep that spirit so everyone's again, going back to how I started, going back to the end user, you know, seeing what else your customers are experiencing, who else is in the market, how's your their experience of your product changing, and how you can keep adapting because you know the goalpost keeps changing in this day and age, just sort of almost like as we sleep, really. Well, I just now I have to ask: Do, do you do you regret a little bit leaving the company? Do you- yes, yeah, very much, absolutely. I um, it was uh, hugely regretted. You know, we thought sort of we weren't needed anymore, and um, I mean, Coffee Republic since we left in two thousand and one um, hasn't done at all well. I mean, you know, eight years after we went, we left. The company was very much kind of going down. Thank God it, it got bought out, but um, it's not at all. You know, it's a sort of shadow of its former self. Um, you know, it, it did not kind of survive. Um, you know, sort of after we left. So um, that's what I, I, you know, I very much believe. And I'm not saying, you know, we would have done magic, but I just, I just know that, you know, we loved the brand as a customer and, you know, we would have just adapted in this market that was so fast changing. And of course, you know, made such huge difference when Starbucks came. Do you think then, and now I'm just trying to glue together a couple of different things that you've said, but do you think that, um, you know, one of the reasons that, 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 small companies with bootstrap uh, budgets are able to come up with those customer pleasing ideas in a way that sometimes big companies that have all the resources can't is that the the fact that they're you know bootstrap budgets means they're closer to the to the end customer like they're, they're closer to knowing what that feels like and up at the top you're like well I mean draw this whiteboard chart of what customers want but they don't really know yes absolutely absolutely you know because when you're when you're close to customers they obviously um you know like you just see all the headaches you know begging to be solved all the you know what what's not working the pain points you know the delight points but you know when you're far away it's very difficult to see those so 
You know what I mean? Some people think very much, you know, sometimes innovation just for the sake of innovation. You know what I mean? Just let's just think of a new idea. And yeah, that idea maybe comes from, you know, market research reports that they've, they've read, but it doesn't really come from really experiencing it for yourself. And I think as an entrepreneur, you're experiencing it for yourself. You're going to the stores every day. You're so close to customers because you haven't got anything to shield you from that. That it just becomes very natural how you would change. You know, had we stayed at Coffee Republic, you know, we were going to the stores every day. We could have seen, you know, with the on sort of Starbucks coming with more coffee bars, how we could be different, how we could be better, always keeping your edge. You know, it's not that complicated. Hmm. It's, I've, I've heard stand-up comedians talk about how once they get successful and start touring, they can't write their act anymore because they're not observing things that normal people observe anymore. They're, all they know is airports and cheap hotels and comedy clubs, and nobody else thinks that's funny. Yes, it's, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what, what, what do you recommend? And I, I think I guess a couple of the answers, but I, but I bet I can't guess the others. And what do you recommend to the, the, the higher ups at organizations to keep in touch with, with, with real end customer needs? I think, you know, in a way, sort of just getting out of the office, just getting out there and trying to experience up close, as up close as you can, um, the customer experience. You know, the kind of the big word here is empathy and empathy is, you know, not just feeling for your customers, not just knowing your customers, but trying to actually feel what they mm. feel, see what they see, you, you know, kind of it might, if, if you're in food, taste what they taste. So, you know, as mu- as close as you can, you can get to the empathy spectrum of your customer, the better that is. So, you know, for example, again, you know, going back to pharmaceuticals, obviously, you know, it's not like a product for me, it was easy to drink our own, they can't do that. But you know, how close can they get to customers? How much can they experience what the patients experience when they take the, take take the um, medication they produce you know there are many many ways for you to try to simulate the customer experience so you can really feel it for yourself and once you get it under your skin and you're feeling what the customer is feeling you know it just ideas will just come to you you can't almost stop them you know kind of stimulus in ideas out in a way but you know people just don't do that and they don't realize how valuable that is now I I do think to go back to to what you said earlier about you know is it is it genetic are people born entrepreneurs I think some people when they're in this customer experience mode and something's going wrong they're in line and things aren't going wrong I think some people go you know what would improve this these three things and yeah. some of those people even tell in a friendly way that never gets listened to they tell the person that's serving them these three ideas for improvement and then there's the type of person that just sort of gripes about it and complains and and gets angry and doesn't have a good time and I don't. I'm not saying that's genetic, but when you say, when you know the, the the when the title of the book is anyone can do it, I wonder if it's like anyone with an open mind who honestly wants to make things better can do it, you know. But some people will just sit at their coffee table and gripe, and not or at their kitchen table and gripe, and not build Coffee Republic. Um, yes, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, all, it, it depends on whether or not we're talking about big companies or entrepreneurship. Yeah, I mean, many people have ideas, obviously. Um, you know, many people have many ideas and they never do it. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Kind of, um, you know, thousands of people tell you about their business idea that never happens. So that on the side of, you know, why people don't start businesses, absolutely. That's why I say entrepreneurship is not a magic formula. It's not a special character some people have. It's just a question of, you know, take the idea and run with it. And that's the only difference between someone who's an entrepreneur and someone who's not. But I, I think, because I, I'm saying something slightly different, you're saying some people have ideas and act on them and some people have, act, act, have ideas and don't. Mm. But I'm saying some people, when it rains, complain that it's raining and that some people go, hey, I should sell umbrellas. 
Um, I, I, yeah, well, I, I mean, it, it, um, yes, well, is, is that sort of the same thing slightly? Yeah. I mean, the one that sells umbrellas actually has the just spot to get up there and, and do something about it. And um, but, you know, I think if, if we're talking the context of a big company, um, you know, when people see stuff that's wrong, you know, if they want to keep their job, if they want to have any any remote element of job security, you've got to solve the customer problem, because if not, the customer's going to go somewhere else. So I think that's a luxury that, you know, if, if you work in a company and you see customers got a problem and you're still griping about it and not doing anything about it, then, um, you know, it, it, it is an incredibly stupid thing to do in, in this world we live in now, which is how, you know, so many of, of, you know, some innovator comes from the back and, you know, does something about it and, 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 and you've lost your kind of market share. Yeah, yeah, that, I, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. I, I just feel like there are gripers and there are problem solvers, and gripers are not entrepreneurs. I guess that's what I'm saying. So yeah, I'm just, well, I mean, my own point is, is actually in this day and age, I think a griper could have survived back then, but I just don't think they can anymore because it's a world that's changing so fast that you just keep having to innovate. So I think, you know what I mean, that, that idea of that kind of caricature of the person that you know, never does anything, that's why you know we all have to become what we all have to get get it into our heads and people do it in different ways you know you're not talking about kind of solving the world or coming up with a genius idea it's just making the improvement you know being proactive we need to be much more proactive in our lives than we have to because we can't sit back anymore because just the pace of changes it's going to annihilate whatever situation you're in if you don't act on it yeah couldn't agree more i couldn't yeah. agree more with that um we are running out of time so i wonder um that your new book when when does it when does it come out Sorry, i mean it's, I... it's it's out already actually it's, oh, yes, it's yes, out. Yes, it came out in march oh, yes exactly it yeah. came out in march i'm i'm sorry about that so so that's great so so the book is out startup forever 10 ways to behave like a startup when you're not a startup what's the one way that we haven't brought up today that you wish that you you, you don't want us to end this conversation without mentioning um, yeah, I think kind of uh, maybe one thing I'd say is um, the importance of being clueless, which is why people always remember that. Um, this idea that, um, you know, if we're stuck in this is how we always do things, then you can't do it. You know, I think you were referring to earlier that sort of griper mentality of, oh, you know, how it is, you know, if someone tried it, it doesn't really work. Um, that is, you know, that, that sort of expert trap, that success trap that keeps you trapped into status quo. And so what you need is this new way we need to all encourage curiosity and when you talk about encourage curiosity people think well that's really obvious you know it's not something you work on but yeah but you know i think in big companies we stifle curiosity and asking questions because we feel you know as you grow older as you become more senior you're not meant to ask questions you're meant to know all the answers so cluelessness is something as being an outsider looking at your business like an outsider you know looking at the possibility of what you can achieve i think is something that's now in everyone's hands and um, you know, going back to the theme, um, really, uh, what you were asking was, you know, we all have to become that kind of much more clueless person and take control. And, you know, if we're missing something, something's not working out, you know, it's in all our responsibility to change it. Well, again, that sounds like good advice. Well, if that's if that's one of the ways we know how to learn the other nine ways, and that's uh, pick up a copy of Startup Forever. Um, we are out of time. It's a hard. Thank you so much for uh, for talking. Thank to me this you. Afternoon. That was love. That was enjoyable. Thank you very much. It was great to talk to you as well. And uh, and again, for those of you who don't don't believe what I said earlier, the book is finished, long finished, and out and for sale. So go 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 get yourself a copy and find out the other nine ways. Uh, that is it for this uh, edition of Business as Unusual. I'm Pep Rosenfeld from Amsterdam, and I look forward to. I want to say seeing you again, but we never see each other. Thanks for joining us.
Hmm.